This is Commerce Code, a Friday morning digital commerce podcast for leaders in retail, technology, banking, payments, financial data, and cutting edge marketing. I'm Dan Carell, CEO of the Digital Commerce Alliance. We'll start with this week's news in digital commerce. We'll start by checking in on the stock market. How are investors valuing the businesses most involved in digital commerce? In particular, how have digital commerce stocks performed since equity markets hit their low point on June 17th? June 17th was the Friday after the U.S. Federal Open Market Committee announced its three-fourth percent rate increase. On Commerce Code that week, we noted that the University of Michigan Survey of Consumer Sentiment had recently dropped to its lowest point on record. Bitcoin was trading below $20,000, having started that week at $28,000, which was well below its all-time high of over $68,000 last November. And mortgage rates rose to 5.78%, their highest since 2008. After that low point, a strong July for global equities markets recovered at least some of the losses incurred in the general market slide from January 1st to June 17th. This week, the S&P Retailer Select Index was up 10% from June 17th, leaving it 27% below its January 1st mark. S&P's Financial Sector Index was up 8% from June 17th, now trading 18% below its January 1st mark, and the Index Fintech Index was up 21%, from June 17th and 33% down from January 1st. So retail stocks and fintech stocks are still off about a third from their January 1st levels, and the financial sector is off about 20%. For comparison, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is 10% lower, and the S&P 500 is 13% lower than on January 1st. Bitcoin continued to claw back from its low point of just under $19,000 reached on June 18th. This week, it traded as high as $23,530, but the leading cryptocurrency is still down about 50% from January 1st. Commerce Code is brought to you in part by Vantage Score. Nine of the top 10 banks and over 3,000 leading banks and fintechs use Vantage Score to predict and manage repayment risk. Learn more about the latest advances in credit scoring and how to grow your lending business by leveraging financial inclusion at VantageScore.com. In this edition of Commerce Code, hey, where did everyone go? Employee shortages and labor market economics, a conversation with Tim Lee of Full Stack Economics. The Labor Department reported Tuesday that U.S. job openings dropped to 10.7 million in June from 11.3 million in May. That's a nine-month low and suggests some softening in the labor market, but still higher than normal with 1.8 job openings for every unemployed person. The Chinese National Bureau of Statistics reported Sunday that the country's factory activity unexpectedly shrank in July. The drop is due to weaker global demand and the government's zero-COVID policy, which has forced factories to shut down amid outbreaks. In company news, 
Uber reported a $2.6 billion second quarter loss Tuesday while announcing that it had generated positive free cash flow for the first time in the company's history. The ride-hailing app has spent $25 billion of its investors' dollars since its founding 13 years ago. For the first quarter in the company's history, it generated $382 million in the three months to June. Deliveries, which have come to represent about half of Uber's revenue, were lower than expected, but revenue from traditional ride fares beat analysts' expectations by $900 million as customers jumped into the backs of Ubers at a higher-than-expected rate as the pandemic wanes. Uber's total revenue was up 105% from last year. German airline Lufthansa Group, among the top four airlines globally by revenue, reported strong second-quarter results on Thursday, posting a profit of 393 million euros, compared to a loss of 827 million euros in the same period last year. British Airways and Air France KLM also reported their first quarterly profits since the start of the pandemic. Even as airlines experience welcome financial success, travel chaos continues amid staff shortages and high tourist travel. Soaring inflation has led to higher wage demands and threats to walk out. Lufthansa's ground staff have already gone on strike, and this week, its pilots overwhelmingly voted for industrial action. As tourists finish out the summer holiday season in the Northern Hemisphere, and business travel hesitates in the face of economic weakness and employees' slow return to the office, airlines can expect turbulence ahead. Airlines could benefit from the fact that employees now increasingly live so far from their places of work that if and when they need to go into the office, many of them will have to fly there. As reported this week by Payments.com, workforces have become increasingly dispersed as companies scramble to hire beyond their labor markets and, increasingly, outside of their own national borders in order to fill open jobs. According to Payments' cross-border payroll and contractor payments report, between 2020 and 2021, 60% of firms said they are employing more international workers, up from just 8% the prior year. The survey naturally asked about how those employees are paid, Companies may have quickly adapted to hiring employees in other countries, but it seems they haven't yet mastered how to pay them. Only one in five firms reported that they hadn't had any problems paying their international employees. Today on the show, we will learn more about the current shortage of workers by speaking with Tim Lee of Full Stack Economics, a Washington, D.C.-based economic analysis firm. Tim, thank you for joining us again on Commerce Code. Great to be able to continue this conversation. And and when we last spoke, we were really talking about just kind of fundamentals of consumers in the economy and uh, talked a little bit about inflation as well. And was just looking forward to having a bit of a conversation with you today about kind of more like the labor market and what's going on there. This is a conversation I've had in my kitchen. So let me just start anecdotally. You go to an airport, you go to some different service type environments and 
they just can't execute, right? They can't operate the way that they quote unquote normally would. Heathrow Airport actually uh, put out a request to the airlines that fly through Heathrow saying, please stop selling tickets for this summer. I think they said through maybe September. And their stated rationale, I believe, was, well, we don't have enough employees and you don't either. You airlines don't either. I'm imagining young people who are a big part of the workforce. So imagining like working at Starbucks or working at different service places. I know it's been hard to hire in that context. Is it true, number one, or do you think it's true that they've been working less? And that's, I guess, a labor force participation question. And do you think if that's true, that there's any evidence that they will come back? Or am I just wrong about everything that I've just described? How do you think about this? So I think there was a lot of discussion last year about the quote unquote great resignation and this idea that you had people leaving the workforce. And I think that was a little bit misleading. I mean, it's true that a lot of people are quitting their jobs and some of those were due to, you know, concerns about COVID or childcare problems or whatever. But a lot of it was they were taking other jobs to some extent, just industries that pay better than Starbucks started to poach Starbucks workers. And I guess the other flip side of that is that the experience of working in some customers facing jobs became less pleasant because you have mask mandates and people are just kind of generally grumpier. And so I think to a large extent, what you saw is young people shifting from Starbucks to other jobs, depending on the situation. And they've also had the wages of low income and young workers have been rising more than average and more than historically. And so I think there's just intense competition for relatively low paid, low skill workers. And that's, I think, most of what you're seeing. It does feel to me like in certain ways, things have changed in a way that maybe won't change back, you know, in certain respects. And, and this, this labor force thing is one where I, I just don't know how true it is. But gosh, it's been a persistently weird, let's say, experience, I think, to see organizations, you know, high functioning retailers or whatever, that you would never have imagined them to be just closing locations before where they can't stay open because they don't have enough staff. And at least I, I don't remember that in my lifetime. One of the good things about tight labor markets that we've had the last couple of years and will hopefully continue to have is that it really shifts the kind of innovations that pay off. Uh, you mentioned like retailers closing. Obviously, one reason for that is like we have Amazon and people don't need to go to retail stores as much as they used to. Um, I'm very interested in things like delivery robots, which could kind of continue that process. But like when you have tight labor markets and low wage workers have plenty of job options, we don't need to worry as much about like, well, you know, if we eliminate this job, like what will the worker do? Because there's like lots of other jobs. And so it both creates an incentive for employers to find labor saving technologies because, you know, they have higher wages they need to pay otherwise. Um, but it also, I think it makes it more of a win-win situation where the employer wins, the consumer wins, and the worker isn't hurt as much because they can easily find a job doing something else. At one point, I forget when it was, some months ago, I did the thing that you probably do on a regular basis, which is to say, well, what's the labor force or workforce participation rate? And it isn't that different than it was maybe before the pandemic. I think it might be a little lower, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it's lower enough, right? And so this is maybe to your point about the great resignation. It's like, okay, well, it wasn't that people quit so that they could stay home and play video games. I don't think it was that they took a different job. And so there are people working. Yeah. I mean, this, this recovery has been very, very different from the recovery we saw after 2008. After 2008, you obviously had a big decline in the labor force participation rate and then a very slow, like painfully slow recovery where it took like eight years from like 2010 to 2018 to get back to the level of the previous peak. And this recovery has been much different. There was an even, I believe, an even bigger drop in labor participation in the first few months of the pandemic. But then you've had a very sharp increase. I think we're still slightly below the like 2019, early 2020 peak 
but we're pretty close to it. We're within a percentage point of it. And that took us about two years to get there, whereas it took like eight to 10 years to do in the 2010s. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely in levels terms, we're not quite where we were back pre-pandemic, but in terms of the pace of recovery, we're doing much better than we were doing. You mentioned before rising wages. To me, there could be a very, very conventional explanation for all of this, which is, look, we have created a lot of jobs and there's a lot more jobs out there than people. And that, I guess, suggests that there are more jobs than there maybe were before, which is a piece that I'm not at all sure of. And so in a sense, it's just a very, very conventional. There's kind of nothing special going on here. This is just a very hot economy. And that's that. Yes. I mean, I think it's a little too hot. Like that's the that's why there's all this inflation, because, you know, if you give people, especially like lower income people, more money to spend, they spend it. And that means there's, you know, a bigger market in all sorts of industries. One company that I think is worth mentioning here is Amazon. You know, I mentioned in a previous conversation that services aren't quite back up to where they were before, but Amazon has a much larger workforce. They really staffed up their warehouses. They set their minimum pay like nationwide for warehouse workers is now at or above $15 an hour. And there's been research that when Amazon announced a new wage floor, like the entire surrounding economy saw a little bump in how much low-wage workers get paid because all the other employers had to you know, compete with people who were thinking about going to Amazon. And the risk of disruption of losing staff, and I think other, and just as, a, as an aside to go down that path a little bit, the operational disruption for Amazon of losing a staff member is not as great because they've engineered you know, their systems in order to be able to handle high turnover, at least in those kinds of service and warehouse positions. Whereas I think for a typical employer, anecdotally, I will tell you, people are terrified of losing staff. So you know, to spend some money to make sure that they don't lose them to Amazon or whoever else is maybe worth it as a kind of insurance policy. So maybe you were at 12 and you go higher than you think you have to go in order to try and keep your people. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and this, again, is a very big contrast with the 2010s where, you know, you had a lot of a lot of Uber rides, a lot of like pour over coffee places. Their business model was built around being labor intensive, like having a lot of people provide services to you. We're now in the opposite economy where it's it's really hard to find people. And so businesses have to integrate in finding ways to economize on labor as opposed to in the previous thing it was kind of like how do we find like work for all these people to do i started off by talking about young people and i want to come back to whether that was even a right way of thinking about it is this a phenomenon we're just seeing at all age levels we imagine like the service sector where we have shortages of employees i mean you're not talking about 16 year olds working at airlines that's not what's going on and so you know maybe i'm wrong to think of this as being somehow related to to youth in the labor force well, I think all these trends are going to be most dramatic for young people because, you know, a lot of middle-aged people, they're just in settled careers. They're in a company they've been at for 10 years and plan to be for another 10. I think many income levels and industries and occupations, you know, the workers have more bargaining power than they have in the last 10 or 20 years. But I think that the strongest trends are at the low end of the wage scale and at the for younger people because those are the people who are most likely to switch jobs, the people who gain skills the fastest. And so it's just when labor markets are tight, they tend to, to benefit the most. And when it's, the economy is bad, they tend to be hurt the most. One way of accounting for everything right now is to say, well, you know what, if, if it turned out that one way or the other inflation got better and the economy didn't crater, but you know, maybe we had a bit of a tough landing, but maybe it's not the worst, the out medium term to long run outcomes for the typical person, wage earner, are looking pretty good, right? Because we've gone from a world where we were politically campaigning for a $15 an hour wage, right? In certain circles to where that kind of had been superseded by the marketplace. Not that there won't be you know, further interest in a in minimum wage, but the point being, am I right to imagine that even if you adjust for inflation, if it gets under control, and I'm hoping it will in the next six to 12 months, that you know, the typical wage earner might be better off in the medium to long run? Or is that, am I kind of missing a piece of the story there? 
that's very possible for the first half to two thirds of 2021 wages were outpacing inflation and you had that happy story. Since then, inflation has spiked up so much that most workers have been losing ground a little bit. And so the optimistic story would be, yeah, the inflation comes down, but the labor market is still tight enough that employers still feel they have to continue giving workers good raises. And so you could have wage growth stay at this kind of high level inflation come down and you can get some real wage growth. So it's this kind of a middle path policymakers want to chart where if things are too loose, inflation spirals out of control. If things get too tight, we could end up with a deep recession, which is not good for workers. So they're really aiming for something in between where labor markets are tight enough that workers still have bargaining power, but not so tight that all their raises get eaten away by inflation. So in terms of, you know, operationally for companies, and again, I'm imagining whether it's restaurants or retailers, maybe airlines and others that are dependent on large numbers of employees, is there some factor that you think you know, will kind of restore some balance in the labor force. And so let me just toss out a couple of considerations. Again, my recollection is is similar to yours, which is that the labor force participation is a little lower than before. So perhaps that's one thing as well. Maybe labor force participation could just rise more. That's one possibility. Another is that there could be demographic things going on. You have waves of retirements and also certain sometimes little waves of people coming in. Immigration also plays into this stuff too. And I've wondered occasionally whether rates of immigration have had an impact on this. But I wonder if you can imagine an equilibrium and you know, we're sitting here 12 months from now and it feels like the workforce situation is better. Like, what would that story look like? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, the kind of base case should be that, that workers, including lower wage workers, should continue to see wage growth with the right sets of policies. I mean, you look somewhere like Japan, which is, I think, in some ways ahead of us in terms of demographics and they have a rapidly aging population. And workers, are, there's a very high labor force participation right there and pretty decent wage growth and low inflation. I don't necessarily want to hold up Japan as the model. I mean, there's some problems with, you know, their inflation is so low that there's some problems there, but definitely I think there's room for the labor force participation rate to go higher. And as the U.S. population ages, there's going to be a ton of demand for both elderly specific, you know, home health care and those kind of services, but also just restaurant meals and other kind of services that are needed in general. There's no reason we need to go back to the early 2010 situation where young workers struggle to find work. I mean, I think we, we definitely want to continue to have stronger spending than we had in the past. We just don't want to overdo it and get in a situation where inflation gets out of control. The inflation experience is, you know, of course, is new in practice, really new to most of us. And it is interesting to just, you know, be doing the math and to be living through that math. On the one hand, I'm a, it's not a secret that I'm a basically free market oriented kind of thinker on this stuff. And so I don't love the idea of, for example, minimum wages by decree, but I also don't love a world in which people are making whatever it used to be, 450 or something an hour or seven bucks an hour. And I, I like a world in which the market pays people 15 or 20 bucks an hour just because that's great. It is interesting to consider, as you kind of, you know, have alluded to, you know, as the baby boomers move into, you know, more needs and more demand for services and retirement homes and all this kind of stuff, you know, and as they essentially spend down their wealth, it also feels like there could be an awful lot of demand in that service space and you could see continuing, you know, inflation, but you might also see some pretty attractive wages being paid at the at the service level. I, I don't know what the time frame is on that, Tim, and whether that's something that gets talked about in, in D.C., just in terms of the demographics I mean, that that's like a 10 to 20 year process. And so I think the inflation is mostly about what the Fed does. Is there another stimulus spending? You know, do taxes get increased? Those, those kind of macroeconomic factors. I think that'll be what shapes inflation and wage growth over the next year or two. But the demographics are more over the next 10 or 20 years 
should we expect lower income, lower wage workers to get raises? I think that kind of imbalance where you have more people retiring, so kind of more consumers and less workers, that should make it possible to continue to have workers have a fair amount of bargaining power that should allow them to have kind of slow but steady increases in their pay over the next couple of decades. Tim, thank you so much for your thoughts, your time today, and we look forward to you know keeping the conversation going. Thanks. Thanks so much. Coming right up, closing thoughts on the mathematics of missing baristas. Remember musical chairs? Ten children are circling nine chairs, and when the music stops, everyone sits down. Well, not quite everyone. That's the point of the game. In my example, the market for chairs meets 90% of demand. The chair shortage is a mere 10%, but in practice, it's never really 10% because when the music stops, eight kids or so, through luck or skill, or in my case, sheer size at a surprisingly early age, um, I was considered husky, I believe. Those eight kids have exactly as much chair as they need, which is one chair. Then, inevitably, two kids have to tussle to figure out which one has one chair and which one has nothing. In musical chairs, the players can't agree to each take nine-tenths of a chair. They have to duke it out to see who gets the whole chair and who doesn't get one at all. The labor market right now is a little like that, but it's changing, and I'm thinking it might change a good deal more, and I'll get to that in a minute. Now, Tim and I talked about the labor participation rate a little bit. Labor participation is the percentage of working-age people who either have a paid job or are trying to get one. So it's people who are in the market. How many people choose to be in the market at all is kind of the big driver of how tight labor markets are. In the year 2000, about 67% of working-age Americans were in the workforce, and it turns out that was the peak. Since then, for reasons that are hotly debated, fewer people have chosen to work for money at all. Just before the pandemic, it was down to 63.6%, and then it cratered during the pandemic, and then it has come back to 62.2%. So there we have a 1.4 percentage point difference between 2019 and now. So this is all pertinent to the question, where where did everyone go? Let me mention three points. First, a think tank called Brookings has done some interesting work on how COVID has impacted the labor market. Well over 100 million working age Americans have contracted COVID at some point in the last few years. And some estimates suggest that a third or so of them have lingering or long-term symptoms. If those people, or even some of those people, are still working, but they reduce their hours, the workforce may actually not be as big as it looks. Taken together, it could largely answer the question, where did everyone go? People are working, so they still show up in workforce participation, but they're not working as much. Second, musical chairs. The reduced labor participation, just about one and a half percentage point drop from 2019 to now, seems pretty tiny, but hiring is a little like musical chairs. An employee either accepts a job or she doesn't. And like musical chairs, it's all or nothing on the margin. What this means and what we've seen is that even though the labor market is 94% full, the wage and benefits bidding wars are just as fierce on the margin as the battle for the last empty chair in musical chairs. And that leads to a lot of employee turnover. And that turnover has a huge negative productivity impact. Third, will companies continue to have employees at all? The musical chairs analogy works for the labor market up to a point because we still have a convention of hiring people into jobs rather than simply relying on a cloud of contractors. Companies are doing more of this contracting than they used to. And I think that trend may continue because it alleviates the musical chair style pressure 
of battling for the next marginal employee or suffering the pain of a full-on departure where you go from having one employee to zero. With the gig economy, companies can each get 90% of an employee or 50% or whatever is needed. And when contractors stop working for a company, in a lot of cases, a slow transition can be negotiated. That's a little bit less painful. That would be a transformation in economy and society with really broad implications if it went much further than it already has. But after the dislocation caused by our labor shortages in the last couple of years, I expect to see employers experimenting pretty aggressively to try to avoid the painful problems they've had in 2021 and 2022. Commerce Code is a weekly podcast of the Digital Commerce Alliance, the premier trade association advancing the future of commerce. Check out our website at digcomall.org. Help us grow Commerce Code by sharing it with your colleagues and old friends from business school and rate Commerce Code on your podcast app. We'd love your feedback and topic ideas. Just drop Dan Carell an email. You can reach him at dan at digcomall.org. On behalf of DCA, have a great Friday and a great weekend.